Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a digital content creator, patient advocate, and co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work, which is on a mission to get you better supported whilst going through all this at work. And I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. In this new series of the Fertility Podcast, we're going behind the scenes of IVF. Do listen to the end of every episode because we want to hear from you. Let's get stuck in. This series of the Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much needed innovation to IVF labs. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W.org. So welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. In what promises to be the start of a heat wave in the UK. The, the, the headline I saw, Kate and I speaking on a Wednesday, the headline I saw for this Friday was Fry, F-R-Y Day. Did you see that one? I did see that one. I can't wait. I'm planning beanbag in the garden. And as my husband said, panic tanning prior to our holiday. That's our plan. Well, I was on Monday out and about. Um, I went to a little uh, spa with my friend, managed oh. to miss my stop en route because I had a call with um, Becky at Fertility Matters at work and missed my stop and had that momentary <laughs> panic of, ah! I'd almost got to London and had to come back because I went to a Champneys for a little bit of R&R with a mate. And lovely. I was sat in the gardens in our dressing gowns um, with our like swimsuits kind of showing. I'm just demonstrating to Kate because you can't quite see it. But I got like, I got the little red chest tan mark because neither of us had got any sun cream on. So um, do please put on your sun cream if you're doing panic tanning. Kate's about to go away, as we've said. So you need to make sure that you don't go away lobster, don't you? I know, I do. But also, this is a really good opportunity for everyone to up their vitamin D doses when it comes to fertility. So get outside and get your vitamin D in, yeah. And I was actually speaking at a mental health conference just the other day for Fertility Matters, and there was a nutritionist there talking about the importance of nutrition in the workplace. And she was talking about vitamin D and how we should supplement it. It's twice a year, isn't it? Absolutely. The guidance are that you should really be taking the supplement. And this is for adults generally, not just because when you're trying to conceive, but adults generally in the um, autumn and winter months. And then you can obviously, when you get to the better months, you don't necessarily need to take it. Hopefully. Yeah, most women who are trying to conceive do continue to take it. There's a really good article, actually, which I haven't read yet about vitamin D and miscarriage risk. So I'll have a read of it and maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But um, it's on my my kitchen island waiting for me to read it. And you know what, Kate and I were just talking about that how-to podcast stuff that we've done previously for the podcast, how to improve your hormone levels and what to eat, all that kind of stuff. And it's all content that we've shared on the podcast before. And we really hope that you're still listening to that because this series is, is very different in that we're talking about going behind the scenes of IVF. And so far, we've talked about how green is your clinic and we've talked about how happy is your embryologist. And we we're really interested to know what you think of this you're saying you're enjoying the content but do keep letting us know we'll give you details at the end because we're wondering whether we need to go back to that old stuff about what to eat and understanding your cycles and it's down to you ultimately to keep letting us know what is interesting for you that stuff still exists on the fertility podcast feed so you can scroll back if you've just found us go back to the earlier episodes 
But what we're going to be talking about today is the corporate world of IVF. And we've got three guests giving us three different viewpoints. You're going to hear from them and then we'll kind of chat about it a bit. And we were just talking, Kate, weren't we, about how this is a quite an unknown area in terms of from a thought process as a patient, stuff that you probably never really have, have thought about. It is. And it, I think it's quite interesting because I think we're we're very much in that mindset of we go and we get given healthcare and we probably don't think about what we're receiving or we accept what we're receiving. But actually, when you're paying for healthcare privately, you have the opportunity to influence that a little bit more. And it's getting our thoughts and our heads around that because the landscape is changing dramatically, as we're going to be finding out. And you as a patient have so much more influence but it's not yet necessarily appreciating that that is there. I think there's a real confidence thing, isn't there? Obviously, you don't want to have to move clinics. You hope that it works where you go. But ultimately, if you're not getting the experience and you are paying for it, then you're totally within your right to go and get the experience that you expect for the money that you're paying, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's getting it's up getting our head around the fact that you're a patient, but you're also a consumer. And that is the difference. Mm. Well, we're going to hear, first of all, from James Nicopolis. So if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that James, who's the medical director at the Lister in London, he was our expert when we used to have Ask the Expert sessions. And we started off with James asking what he had to say about kind of the state of the IVF sector. Have a listen. The HFEA are always going to be in charge from a regulatory point of view, and that won't change whatever the ownership or the corporate status of clinics are and I think we all will remain accountable to them which I think is the right thing. I think what has changed over the course of the last few years I think many clinics are consolidating and big clinic groups are buying out clinics so you've probably got two or three big clinic groups that own a number of what used to be smaller clinics now and I think there are probably positives and negatives of that but I think that's that's the big sea change. There are a number of new standalone clinics that have opened of late, which is always a good thing as well. But I think the main change is those corporates trying to hoover up other clinics. And what would you say are the positive and negatives then of the kind of corp, the, the group, the group clinics? I think that there is something to be said for consistency of practice, uh, consistency of quality. I think the big groups, I hope, have good governance structures in place that are consistent across all their sites, making sure the right things are done. And sometimes that consistency and that oversight is really useful. I think equally, perhaps the good old days of a, of a doctor running his clinic, a doctor being in charge and a doctor making the decisions without any thought whatsoever to, to corporate factors, finance also has its positives. Mm. Um, and I think there's always going to be that tug between the two. I, I don't think clinicians make decisions based on finance but there's always that in, in the background there that you have to please the people that are funding your unit there's that pressure isn't there there's that pressure I guess to to conform to that to a certain extent and I completely agree with you you, you know you, you, I can't imagine that medical professionals would ever go down that road fully but there must be some pressure exerted I mean is I mean I'm saying there must be is there pressure exerted I think if the venture capitalists, for example, who've come in and bought clinics, I'm not even sure I know what a venture capital is, by the way, uh, as a doctor, but they've yeah, come we'll in, they've come, come, come yeah. in and bought clinics. I think they, they clearly have bought clinics because they see it as a good business prospect. I'm sure these people have a, have a, have a, have a master plan to sell on and make money. And the value of a clinic and the value of a business is going to be based on the, the, the throughput, be it number of patients or revenue. 
Um, so I think there's always going to be that pressure to meet whatever targets they have. The counter argument to that is actually, if I run a good clinic and if I treat people well, and if patients go and tell their friends that we've done a good job and our success rates are good, actually you tick both boxes. You've done the right thing for your patients and you keep the powers that be that happy. So, yeah. you know, although, although there will always be those influences there, it, 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 may, it may push towards some more positives. Mm, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I, I've kind of heard more in, in, I guess, the last two years from patients directly about their concerns over the potential commercial interests in, in clinics and that clinics have this commercial interest. Do you, do you hear that from your patients ever, that their worries about that? No, I, actually, I really don't. I, I, I don't think I've heard that. I think we now have absolutely clear rules that websites of clinics should make it absolutely clear where the ownership is. And you need to make it absolutely clear that if any clinicians that you're seeing have any interest in, in the clinics, that should be front and center on a website. Um, the only concerns I have is that there are understandably more and more finance packages for IVF. Um, and I, we have always separated ourselves from those packages because these people that offer these packages, they're fantastic. They offer a good service to many, but they are there to make money. Yeah. And sometimes the way they make money is that we do really well as clinics. We get people pregnant quickly. They pay us for what we do. So there's no difference in our clinical practice where a pa- whether a patient pays us or whether a patient pays these external finances. But they make money by us getting a patient pregnant quickly. But I like that separation between the finance and the clinical decision making. Yeah. Some clinics are beginning to adopt their own finance packages uh, where there's a refund if you don't get pregnant, or all these caveats come in. And I worry when clinics run their own finance packages that that does affect decision-making, be it on the type of treatment, be it on how quickly they have treatment, be on whether they freeze embryos or transfer embryos. I worry about that connection. I really do. Yeah. And, I, and, I've said it, and I said it to the CMA when they were doing their, uh, you know, their recent guidance. Do you think that the changes that we're seeing in terms of groups buying clinics, private investors getting involved. Do you see the changes affecting the cost of treatment at all? Like, might it become more regulated if there's like big groups and it's not based on geography or other factors that determine cost at the moment? I think that's a really good question. Honestly, I'm not sure it will. I think there remains many different ways for an IVF price list to look and to be structured. And I know we have discussions with a new clinic that we're setting up and actually the two sites don't completely agree on that and there's no right or wrong it also depends on the patients you're treating and i know when i've looked at other clinic groups and you look at their prices for a clinic in manchester or a clinic in london the way they price is different and the prices are different so i don't necessarily think it will give us complete consistency and i'm not always sure there needs to be because of the different there's horses for courses i don't think it'll necessarily push the prices down i think they are where they are and and i think that's where they'll stay for now really and I suppose just finally, I was just mentioning to Kate before, James, that I was on the patient stakeholder chat with the HFEA yesterday and they we were both just talking were. about... We both were. Sorry, we both were, <laughs> Kate. We were both on it. It's just Kate had to go and I filled her in on this extra bit, which is the only reason I said that. Yeah, You can, um, you can fill me in now. Good. Well, one of the things they were just talking about was how they are, they were explaining how they are speaking with the Department of Health and Social Care about trying to modernise the HFE Act 
um, which has hardly changed in the last 30 years. And one of the things they were talking about was patient protection and talking about how the Act assumes the clinician ownership model is still in place, which no longer exists. And I just thought it was quite interesting in light of what we've just been talking about. They were saying about how that owner-operator model, as you just said, doesn't stand. And where does that leave the person responsible? What we're really talking about is where does the buck stop? Does the buck stop with the clinician who's seeing you? Does the buck stop with a PR of the clinic? Or does the buck actually stop with the company, be it a healthcare company as we are, or limited company, whatever it might be, who actually owns the clinic and the PR is employed by? I think there is a grey area there. And I think it's probably something that does have to be tightened up. So thoughts, Kate, on what James had to say? Well, I think there's an awful lot there. I think it's so interesting how the clinics are, or the clinic landscape is changing and we're getting these group clinics now that James talked about, didn't he? And, and that's yeah. really fascinating. These are, are very large organisations. Um, and, you know, he talked about the benefits of that with consistency and therefore quality of care, which is definitely a good thing. Um, I guess what I'm hearing more and more from my patients who are accessing private healthcare is their their worry around any commercial interest that clinics might have versus healthcare, and I think that is something that is a completely new landscape for us to even consider and take on board. And it, it's it's interesting to how much thought process that might be given by patients. And when somebody comes to you with the worry, are they feeling able to go and go back to their clinic and express those worries, or do they do it kind of privately to you? I think that's. One of the reasons why people come to me when they're going through IVF is that they want that independent opinion and they feel that actually if they can have a sounding board that is separate for their clinic and it and mull over the, the clinic kind of decision, decision, the things that clinic are asking them to do and give them that opportunity to discuss it. And, you know, I'll always go back to saying, right, let's look at the evidence for this treatment for whatever reason and go and have a discussion with your clinic about the risks and the benefits. So we'll always kind of go back to that. I, I think there's an element of, Patients are perhaps beginning to question more, but I still think unless you're aware of that potential commercial interest, you probably don't even think to do it. And I think that's why people like Kate are so valuable for you to be aware of. And we'll put all her details at the end. And I'm not doing it as a shameless plug, but as you just heard, <laughs> Kate, say having that sounding board, that independent person, if you are buying this service, and it could be the most expensive thing you've ever bought. I mean, I'm not talking from experience because if you don't know my story, we were fortunate enough to be um, eligible for NHS funding. But I have had so many conversations with people who are now my friends within this space who have spent thousands and the figures are staggering, spending £20,000 on something to not get the best quality of service. It just beggars belief. You wouldn't, you just wouldn't tolerate that in a different environment. And that is that element of, you, you know, you're so, you're vulnerable, you're so desperate to be able to bring your baby home that you just listen and take on whatever is almost thrown your way and you should be treated so well and looked after and be able to voice concerns and complain and sadly we know that people do keep quiet when they're not happy with things don't we yeah I think it's that whole you know when a doctor sat in front of you in a white coat we all become a bit mute and just go yes doctor you know and I'm guilty of it too of being often you know if I've got a healthcare issue and I'm sat in the waiting room waiting to speak to my GP and I'm rehearsing over in my mind what I want to say because I want to be able to get my words out right so we all feel that pressure to a certain extent and I think it like I said it's changing that mindset to think actually hang on a minute we're consumer here and like you say you wouldn't put up with it in any other situation so why should we and it's funny 
you saying about rehearsing your words. So I mentioned I was at a spa at the start of the week and I was having a massage and I'd said, go as firm as you can. And at one point she was kind of doing this knot in my shoulder and I could feel it. And I was like, come on, thinking to myself, you can, you can get this, you can get this. And she wasn't quite firm enough. And I was like, say something. And this went around in my head for a good minute. Just say something, say to her. And then finally I went, could you really go a bit firmer on that? I reckon we can. And she was like, yeah, okay. And, and we, she did. And she, you know, she got rid of it, but it took me a bit of almost cajoling of myself to just speak. We are, we are perfectly capable in so many different settings, but when it, I mean, not that I'm not comparing having a massage to having a conversation with your fertility specialist at all. Please don't think I am. But just having the confidence to speak up and, you know, and say, you know, what you think. Do you know what? I've done exactly the same. Even with my nails, I've kind of looked and thought someone's doing my nails thinking, I don't like the way that they've done that or they don't, haven't done the tops properly and therefore they're going to chip. But I don't say anything. What is the matter with us? Yeah. I don't know. Let's move on because next up, we're going to hear from Peter Riesleb, who's the founder and CEO of the Fertility Consultancy. We're going from the UK to Europe. Peter's someone who I, I kind of discovered on LinkedIn. He was talking about how what he aims to do is be this like world leading fertility consultancy company. And I asked him his thoughts on also what was changing. We've already started to hear a bit about this consolidation of clinics and have a listen to what Peter has to say. To start off with, Peter, I'd love to just find out more from you about what the Fertility Consultancy is and does and how your organisation might be shaking up the IVF sector as it stands. Thank you very much, Natalie, for having me and, and giving me the opportunity to uh, to tell about Fertility Consultancy that I just very recently have founded and started out. We have our outset uh, and fundament based of upon experience from within the fertility sector, where I worked nearly a decade lately as the group CEO at Christ International and International Donor Sperm and Egg Bank. And I started fertility consultancy being passionate about the purpose of supporting people in the need of help to have children. I believe I realized the potential in providing specialized consultancy services to assist fertility clinics, companies, and professionals actively working within the field of, of assisted reproduction. So in terms of me as the patient and what you're hoping to do to smooth out the process, what's the kind of ideal experience, I suppose, for the, for the patient then? Well, that's that's a, a broad question, of course, but uh, what we see in terms of developments within the fertility area that will influence the patients or the clients, as I prefer to, to name them, as patients is really when there's a medical indication. And 15% of all heterosexual couples that are involuntarily childless. But apart from that, we have new family forms, if you like, with single females and same-sex couples that are becoming more and more normal in the sense of, of establishing families and having children through the help of assisted reproduction treatment. Some of the developments since the assisted reproduction started in the late 70s, the Pioneers are now uh, retiring, and that is uh, creating an opportunity, you might say, for capital investors to enter this area, acquiring uh, clinics, and therefore we have seen a development with uh, international network of and consolidation of fertility clinics internationally. That means also that the, on the patient side, that there's more offerings taking place, there's more uh, international uh, opportunities um, that make uh, people look out for where is the service 
um, and what kind of need and for treatment they're uh, looking for, and then they will travel for it. That's why we've seen fertility tourism growing a lot in the, the last years. And I suppose what that might imply is that there might be more cost regulation because it can be so varied country to country, can't it? Yeah, exactly. Legislation plays a, a big role in, in, in this regard. And fortunately, you can say we see more and more liberalisation in terms of who have access to fertility treatments. Lately in Europe, we have seen Sweden, Norway, France opening up for, for single females and, and, and same-sex couples to have treatment in, in, in their countries. Um, uh, but we've also seen the opposite, for instance, in Poland. Um, but but the trend is towards more openness and access to fertility treatments. When it comes to kind of shaking up what's currently happening, where do you see, you know, what your organisation is doing in terms of what the future of IVF might might look like? We provide our services, you can say, towards free, free groups, uh, fertility clinics, the companies that supply the fertility clinics, and then the uh, capital investors advising them in terms of, of how the fertility uh, sector is operating. And there's no doubt that this consolidation of clinics, uh, as I mentioned before, in, in networks of clinics, also... Uh, means that the competition uh, is increasing on an international level. But for a patient could mean uh, or should mean improved services uh, at, a, at a lower a lower price. Um, it should also mean that there's a greater pressure for the clinics, you might say, to focus upon uh, quality assurance. And uh, I'm sure we will see uh, great developments when it comes to uh, improving uh, digitalization, automation, and robots, for instance, uh, in, in the clinic and laboratory settings uh, in order to uh, improve the quality, ensure traceability, uh, but also meet uh, expectations from, from clients uh, uh, and, and avoid unnecessary load of stress for people working in the laboratory clinics uh, to avoid, avoid making making errors simply. So it's like shared best practice, isn't it, in terms of the clinics from clinic to clinic? And and I was also just thinking, when we think of areas that might need more research, for example, sperm health and male infertility, there might be bigger pools working together of examples of patients and what have you that could ultimately help with outcomes, couldn't they? Yeah, I completely agree that, that the, the networks also then uh, bring the clinics from, from different countries together that are then... Uh, uh, sharing uh, experiences and 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 when it comes to research, also they are able to to make bigger resource databases. You might mm. say make use of bigger databases and and, and thereby uh, data scientifically. And from what you've seen so far, is there a country leading this that you're quite excited about the potential it might offer other countries? Leading in in what I suppose in, what in its way? approach in its approach to innovation or whether it's the way that the clinics are run. I mean, I know there's such difference in regulation, for example, in the UK to Europe to America. Yes. I just wondered, from what you've seen so far, if there's certain areas... You're based in Denmark, right? Yes, I am. And obviously, the, the, the Danish approach is forward-thinking in itself. Yeah, and you could say that, again, legislation uh, in the fertility area also have plays an, a role in terms of where does uh, f- treatments and developments take place uh, first and foremost. And, and in this area, we've always looked towards the U.S. for developments and, and many of the big networks are also, let's say, 
grown out of of, of US and, and and also with capital investment. But but really, I I see that the assisted reproductive world is becoming more and more global, and we see many actors from from different parts of the world getting involved and being active. This is a the issue as mentioned with with heterosexual couples and fifteen percent being involuntarily childless. That, that's a global phenomenon and and not just a, a developed world uh, issue. Um, and therefore, in, in future, uh, we should see more uh, and more opening us for, for, for assisted reproductive treatment also in, in new parts of the world. It's still Europe and, and US where we see by far the most treatments taking place, and then also China and, 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 and Japan. But this will uh, grow further also because uh, the main reason for being childless is AIDS-induced infertility. And that's that's also uh, seen in other parts of the world. And Denmark, for instance, has have not reproduced as a country for more than 50 years. Uh, and that's obviously a big issue for as a society. For a society yeah. to reproduce, a woman needs to, to on average, uh, have 2.1 uh, children. And, and Denmark, that has been below... Uh, ever since uh, 1968. So, so we have been in a, you can say, a deficit of children for many, many years. Peter, thank you for your thoughts and insight on this. It's definitely one to get people thinking about what the future of the industry looks like. And I think opening up the opportunity, like you say, for fertility tourism, which is in itself probably another podcast episode. So thank you, Peter, for your time. Thank you very much. I was kind of interested when Peter was um, alluding to there being the potential of insights and research to be shared from this consolidation and this collaboration. And so you'd hope ultimately, we've been talking about the patient experience, you'd hope that that would spill over into what you then experience as a patient. Did you get that from him? Definitely. And I think he kind of puts it in quite a positive light, actually, doesn't he? Um, in the fact that um, it should, it could result in competition with regards to clinics, which would then result in better care, better services at a lower cost. And pressure for clinics with regards to quality assurance, which I think was really interesting. So that's a quite a positive spin on how the landscape is, is changing. And I just wonder, does that mean that it puts the patient more in charge? Do you think? Yeah, well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Mm. Our final guest is Griffin Jones. Now, Griffin runs a marketing and business development company called Fertility Bridge. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear him explain what his company does and how he helps clinics. And he talks, as Peter and James uh, also did, about this whole consolidation, as well as giving us a little lesson in uh, the world of private equity. Here he is. We first spoke, I'd say, four, five years ago. It was ages Earlier ago, than that. It? It's probably 2015. Really? It was when I'd first started. Is that when you I, first it was, started? It was when I first started too. And we were like, what are we doing? We're talking about this this space. Just explain a bit about what you do at Fertility Bridge. I own a client services firm for the fertility field. So if everybody listening, all of the venture capital money that's in the field right now, all the private equity money, Natalie Silverman decided to pick the D student that built a client services firm, purely cash, no outside money whatsoever, total outsider guy, and uh, built a client services firm slowly. So we're a creative and biz dev firm. We started off helping with patient acquisition. Most fertility centers are busy at capacity. So a lot of our systems improvement has been for patient satisfaction now, as opposed to patient acquisition. It's been for branding for purposes of remaining current and 
being able to recruit because most centers are having a difficult time recruiting now that they're so slammed with new patients and helping them stay current when there's all of these new competitors coming into the marketplace. So from your point of view, when we look at like who's really in charge, is it getting less and less in what you're seeing? It's kind of hard to say. It's it's because we're seeing the same things that we've seen happen with craft beers and with regional banks in that we're seeing a lot of consolidation, but then we're seeing breakoffs and the cycle continues ad infinitum. So what we are seeing, though, Natalie, is consolidation. That yeah. is happening all over the place, at least in the United States and Canada. It's happening in other places, too. But in the United States, it's mostly happening from private equity. Does your audience know the difference between private equity and venture capital? I'm going to guess no, because my audience mostly doesn't, and they're yeah, business owners. Yeah, I can't owners. speak for them, but go for it. So who better to learn from than a D student that's like half a notch better than an Investopedia but page? But you'll say it in a way that we understand, which is All right, good. So everybody fact check what I say, but I'm pretty sure that I have this right now, which is that venture capital is early stage funding, tends to be early stage funding, tends to be for businesses that are going to scale. Think of all the tech companies that start from nothing and then become major billion corporations, usually do not take a controlling stake. Contrast that with private equity, which is buying established businesses, making them more efficient, either by reducing operating costs, increasing profit by increasing sales, both. And uh, and usually taking a controlling stake. So they can be a Venn diagram. Those two things overlap. And if people want to see where those overlap, watch Shark Tank or in in the UK, is it Dragon's Den? Yeah, yeah. So watch Dragon's Den because you'll see it's usually a venture capital play, but yeah. sometimes they make a private equity play. Sometimes it's it's like, oh, this is an established business. I want control. I'm going to buy 51% of it, and here are my terms. So if you want to see where VC and PE overlap, watch one of those shows. But that's what we're seeing in the U.S. and Canada. It's mostly private equity. We're not seeing too much venture capital. Kind Body is an exception. Mate Fertility is an exception, at least on the clinic side. Uh, and in Europe, I know less about it. I don't know if it's private equity. We are seeing consolidation with corporate IVF, but it might be publicly listed companies that are doing that purchasing and that's not private equity, but we're seeing consolidation everywhere and both the clinic side and the industry side. And what do you think that means for the patient? I'm not sure what it means for the patient yet. Like, heck if I know. And the reason I don't know yet is because I think the jury's still out. And I try to be pretty impartial in my judgment. And I'm hearing a ton of opinions, Natalie. I hear opinions. And it's amazing that we put REIs and PhD lab directors on pedestals of how scientific they are. Almost no one's a scientist when they're not in the lab. And then even then, it's hard to get people to behave scientifically. And what we need is, I just had an author on my podcast who talks about the evil of private equity. And she might be right, but she's giving me lots of anecdotes. And I hear the private equity people give me lots of anecdotes about how they're improving the patient experience because they're improving efficiency, they're reducing waste. And they're just anecdotes. So what I think we need is we need a, uh, Dr. Matt Retzloff talks about a blinded study for Success, clinical success rates. Heck if I know of how that would actually play out. Yeah. I think we need net promoter score. 
as a, as a metric. And then I think there needs to be at least one other KPI that is an access to care metric, right? Because you could nail the first two, you could have great clinical success rates, you could have an amazing net promoter score. But if you're doing that at the expense of shutting so many people out of care, then it, then we, we can't categorically say it's for the better. So we need at least one third metric that's about access to care. Just elaborate on that net promoter score, because I don't know if that's something that we, is that how clinics are kind of ranked? It's not how clinics are ranked. It is, a, I believe net promoter score is a private company. Sometimes people use Gallup. Some, you can use all oh, right, different yeah. kinds of, but, what, but net promoter score is one of the most effective sim, because it's so simple. The question, Natalie, is how likely are you to recommend Griffin Jones services to a friend yeah. on a scale of one to 10? And, and because from that one answer, you get a lot of information, then you can ask follow-up questions. But if you're a nine or a 10, you are, you are an ambassador for, for Griffin Jones services. If you're a seven or an eight, you're not either hurting me nor helping me. But if you're, if you're a one or a six, you're a detractor. And so that's, you can use it in, in, you can have different types of scores, but net promoter score is a good one. Okay. So in terms of what you've seen change when you've been working with clinics and helping them kind of promote themselves, are the messages changing for what the clinic is saying to the patient? Slowly. Okay. One of the reasons why it's not changing that quickly is because why would they, Natalie, like why would they invest in that type of messaging when they view it as for patient acquisition and they don't need help with patient acquisition. So 80% of centers don't need help with patient acquisition. I suppose I don't mean about that specifically. I mean, the way that clinics are marketing themselves. Have you seen a shift in the messaging about what's important to the patient? I don't necessarily mean for that patient acquisition piece. I mean, generally. Well, no, and that's why, because they're not going to change because they're already getting lots of new patients. So why change their message? But what we are seeing is we are seeing a change in the total landscape because we're seeing new people come in. So it's not that we're seeing the other people really change their messaging. They're doing that very slowly and it's mostly lipstick. But what we are seeing is like kind body come in. And so our company, we're a creative and branding firm. We created a fertility brand scale. It's one to four. And we tried to make it as empirical as possible because brand is subjective. But we tried to say, this is the, this is the naming of a one. This is the logo of a one. This is the imaging, the messaging, et cetera, of a one. And then we line them up against the generations that either were in the, the field of care or are now. And so baby boomers to Gen Z. And we're not really seeing the, the other folks starting to change. A couple of our clients are because that's what they're coming to us for. But what we are seeing is like kind body is the first real four that's, yeah. line, that's designed for millennials and somewhat Gen Z. And so they, t- they talk completely differently than those brands that were designed even six or seven years ago. And they talk very differently from the brands that were designed 20 years ago. So there you go. And he talks about net promoter. I think we need to think more like Trustpilot or Google reviews mm. in what he was talking about. Obviously, we're talking about America. It's very different. People are much more used to paying for their healthcare. It's often part of packages that people get through their work. And I think it's a big consideration when people are even looking at where they're working, the healthcare packages, isn't it? And it's something that 
we're obviously seeing more of in the UK as we see fertility benefits being introduced. We've talked about fertility benefits in the Fertility Matters at Work series, if that's something that is of interest to you. What do you think, Kate? Because this seems like almost more than your average person going through IVF is going to be thinking about. It feels like we've kind of really pushed the boat in what we're asking you to think about. But I know that you're having conversations with people. We want to kind of give you food for thought when it comes to making decisions. Do you think we've got people thinking? I think so. I mean, I find personally, I find it all a bit mind-blowing, the whole venture capitalist thing. And actually, it was funny when James said it in his chat, didn't he? He said, I don't what is know it? what a venture capitalist is. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that one. I don't know either. Um, so it is a People bit with mind- lots of money. Yeah, exactly. So it is really mind-blowing. Yes, I think it's so interesting to know that behind your clinic is an investor and what that potentially means for you and your care. What does it mean for the patient? I think we're going to see completely different landscape in the future. And I think time will tell. Because I don't really know what it means yet right now, but I think time will definitely tell. This idea that we are in a position to speak up if we're not happy, to move clinics if we're not happy, to look at like this whole picture. I don't know whether you've ever chosen a clinic over not just the success rates and getting on with, you know, the, the clinician and the nurses and getting the good vibe from visiting the clinic, but also because their website's really small, their branding really kind of drew you in. Does that factor in? I don't know. I mean, you heard Griffin there, you know, he he's the kind of brand marketing person. I don't know if that's important. I think, I know from my point of view, it was location, it was success rates. Um, I mean, I, I, as I said, I had access to funding, so I didn't really have a choice in where I went. I, I did get what I was given. But if you are choosing, you've got these these factors, location, success rate, how you feel about the clinic, cost, which we know James said it varies. There's not going to be anytime soon any regulation in cost. What other factors are you going to choose? Are you going to want to go for a more independent style clinic? Or does that clinic group give you more assurance? Does it make you feel more confident? It's a name. It's a known name. I would think it's really interesting on the whole branding, isn't it? Because if you think about, I don't know about you when it comes to Instagram, but you can get really sucked in on branding. Is that the same then with your fertility clinic? Could you get sucked in by their website and kind of all their offerings I definitely think so I've seen a change in the time that we've been in this space of new organizations as Griffin alluded to who have come into this space and I've seen really smart looking kind of campaigns that have caught my attention and I've been like is that a fertility clinic and they may be delivering their services in a different way there might be like an app involved and there might be you know other elements to the patient care experience because ultimately you are having an experience, your outcome you'd hope is that you bring a baby home, but also that journey and that support that comes with it isn't just what happens in clinic. It is that communication around it. It is if you're picking up your phone and probably looking at your Insta and if your clinic's putting out really good information that you're going to be like, they are on it. You know, that's so useful. That little video of that embryo transfer, when you're like about to go into embryo transfer and you've been maybe nervous about it and you're thinking, oh my goodness, my clinic's just shared that. You're going to feel really like they're speaking to you. Whereas if you're going to your clinic website and I've talked to clinics who are reevaluating their website and they're trying to make them look more savvy and, you know, I'm there going, maybe have some voices on there. There's all different ways that people are communicating. And ultimately, as the patient, I do think you're going to see differences if you're moving from one clinic to the next. And maybe that does factor into your decision making. Mm -hmm. But let us know. Let us know what matters to you, you know, in terms of the clinic 
decision, the obvious ones about the success and how the people make you feel. We've asked you about the green credentials. We've asked you about the embryologist. What else is it about that whole clinic decision making? Are you aware of these groups? Are they making you feel more confident or are they making you think, I don't want to go to the big guys. I want to go to the little bespoke person. We'd be really keen to hear your thoughts. I mean, have you heard mixed feelings, Kate, from people that have gone to the big guys compared to the little guys? That's a really interesting question. I do hear that sometimes with the big guys, they might feel that they're more of a number rather than the individual holistic type of care that is perhaps more bespoke to them. But it's not something I hear about a huge amount. So maybe that's not so much of a issue for them right now. I don't know. Interesting. Well, let us know. You can get in touch. You can drop us an email, info at thefertilitypodcast.com. You can, of course, comment on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Nurse. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to rate and review this episode as it makes other people realise that this is worth a listen. And until the next time. So thanks again to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, who can track and monitor the vitrified eggs and embryos stored within its system through its unique and proprietary RFID technology. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, reducing the possibility of human mistakes. So to learn more, or to talk to your healthcare provider about storing your embryos or eggs with tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W.org.